We're now developing a master plan that encompasses the theme park and all the facilities around it that will serve the tourists. Captain, giant squid, dead ahead. Stand by, repellent charge. Homo sapiens. <laughs> well, no matter. But after all, <laughs> nobody's perfect. <laughs> Well, as you can see, we're just one big happy family. <laughs> w Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 695. And together, as we have been for the past 17 years, we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, Marvel, Star Wars, and more here on the podcast, my weekly live video, events, blog, and so much more. You can please be sure to join the community, subscribe to the podcast, and find everything else at www.radio.com. So I just returned from New York Comic Con 2022, and I want to share two of the conversations I had while I was there. The first is with Scott Drake, the creative executive of the Marvel Global Portfolio for Walt Disney Imagineering about Marvel and its place in the Disney parks and experiences around the world. We talk about the evolution of the storytelling experiences in the parks, including interactivity and personalization, and the connection that the parks, characters, and stories have with guests. I also had the opportunity to interview Brian Volk Weiss, who is the creator of the toys and the movies that made us, behind the attraction on Disney+, Plus, which I love, and his newest project, Icons Unearthed, The Simpsons. We discuss not only this series about the longest-running TV show of all time, but storytelling, filmmaking, and fandom. Then stay tuned for our Disney Trivia Question of the Week, where you can enter to win a Disney Prize package, your voicemails, and more updates at the end of the show. And if you like what you hear, please share the show and tell a friend. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. first conversation from New York Comic Con that I want to share with you is with Scott Drake. He's the portfolio creative executive for Marvel at Walt Disney Imagineering, who was part of a panel called Suiting Up with Superheroes at Disney Parks and Experiences. He was on the panel with Beth Clapperton, Dave Bushor, Michael Cerna, Rachel Page, Sachi Hanke, and Wyatt Winter. And they all discussed how Disney and Marvel have brought superhero stories to life at Avengers Campus, at Disneyland Resort and Disneyland Paris, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, at Walt Disney World, Avengers Quantum, Quantum Encounter on the Disney Wish, and how we as fans can join in this current and next generation of superheroes thanks to the creativity and ambition of Walt Disney Imagineering. It was a fun, fascinating, and fantastic panel that I really enjoyed, and actually, I was able to record for you. And what I've done is I've uploaded this video to YouTube. I'm going to link to it on the www.radio.com website as well as my YouTube channel, and I'm going to link to it in the WW Radio Clubhouse on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. It's a really interesting conversation about how Disney brings, for example, new characters to Avengers Campus since it first opened, how they are continuing to bring new characters all the time. Wyatt Winter talked about Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. We get a little hint of what's to come for the holiday remix. We learn about bringing the World of Marvel restaurant aboard the Disney Wish featuring the Avengers Quantum Encounter, not just what's there now, but what is coming, which I had never heard before. We learn more about Marvel Day at Sea, which is going to be returning in 2023 on the Disney Dream instead of the Disney Magic. Some of what Disney and Marvel have done in the overseas parks and really how all of these attractions and experiences are connected and part of a larger Marvel Cinematic Universe story. I then was very fortunate to have an opportunity to sit down with Scott Drake, along with my friend Jeremiah Gooden from LaughingPlace.com. You'll hear his voice on the discussion as well. As we really take a deeper dive, at least from my perspective, into the storytelling 
the personalization and the interactive experiences that we as guests can experience now and maybe what is coming in the future. I hope you enjoy. So I think the, this question is going to be easy for both Lou and I to ask. What is your favorite Easter egg in any of the properties? Because I think Lou and I have both experienced everything in the U.S. and on the cruise ship, but we haven't made it over to Paris or Hong Kong yet. Oh, man, that that's a... Uh... That's unfortunately a hard question because there's just so many of them. Um, you know, I personally, I love the Easter eggs that have worked backwards um, mm-hmm. from the park development and from this unique collaboration that have found their ways back into the films. Um, and even though it's small, it just shows that, we're, as Dave said, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what we can continue to create and expand the universe. So for me, plus my love of vehicle design and that's my background so the quinjet uh designing that specifically for the storyline for avengers campus to be more forward forward looking and aspirational and high tech and then seeing that uh in avengers endgame um was definitely a a moving moving experience yeah because you guys have it's been a back and forth like they were saying where it's you know which came first the chicken or the egg the parks or the movies and you guys are really hitting that stride where you're both working in tandem to get excellent product that that translates to the guests around the world or the lucky guests like us that go and get to go into the parks and it's amazing yeah obviously the success of marvel studios has just made so many more people aware of these characters and they love these characters um but for some people the park experience, and we treat this, we, we got this from the uh, our first meetings with some of the uh, Marvel New York and Marvel publishing team was like, they treat every comic like it's someone's first comic, and we treat our attractions like that. You can go in and not know any of the characters, or you can have this you know deep backstory and knowledge. Um, so we try to work on all those levels. So there's, there's definitely um, Easter eggs that, um, you know, having having the, the clock in the queue of web slingers set six to 616, yes. uh, you know, that, uh, but, and that, so that's for our Marvel fans, but then in Epcot, we have so many, uh, Zandarian logo designs that are based off of the old energy pavilion, um, uh, graphics. So, you know, for our Epcot fans, they're, they're looking for those, uh, uh, as well. So, uh, I, um, I love this, this, as I, I like to look at it from a sort of a, a thirty thousand foot view in this this iterative evolution of storytelling that really goes back to Walt wanting his two dimensional movies to be able to be experienced in three dimensions in Fantasyland and Disneyland, and over time, the attractions have not just become more technologically advanced, but they are more interactive. They're way more participatory, and what we're starting to see now is this next level of personalization of the experience for guests, right? We're seeing it in places like Galaxy's Edge, places like Avengers Campus, where we can live our own Marvel story. Can you yeah. talk about how that is is part of the development mindset and sort of the, again, this evolution of the guest experience? A- absolutely. And, and that's something that we've been championed for the last, you know, couple of, couple of decades now that I've been at, at Imagineering, um, where how much... How much interactivity can we layer on? How much personalization so that it is it is um, has the biggest impact on the the guest experience? Um, you know, we we treat every attraction, and this has been since the very beginning. We treat every attraction like we're building a set for a film where every guest is the camera walking through, right? So that that's that's already like trying to personalize how that experience gets uh you get taken on i will tell you that um our biggest challenge and opportunity everyone there's the expectations around personalization everybody's device and everybody's uh you know computer savvy about how life should work and how we should um uh, personalize your day that expectation comes to the park so it's not just about um um elevating but it's meeting guest expectations and then where we can how can we use that as a as a story um motivator 
to push on the technologies to take them further. And and what what's great because these stories exist in our world, having your device or having technology or having things that are um, of our world or that we've seen in the film that enhance that um, that sense of perception that I I believe that I. I am seen, I believe that I'm part of this world, I believe that I'm in the middle of the story, that there are stakes in this. And, and those, are, those are conversations that we have uh, in, in all of our brainstorms. Um, and just going back to that challenge, the challenge is we also want to deliver that to as many people as possible. So th that, that tug of war between personalization and capacity, um, because if, if it's not, um, the, the trade-off as we all know is just, longer and longer lines and that's not a, a, a good guest experience either so well even something simple like exiting it's a small world or the queue of rock and roller coaster what magic band magic band plus now is going to offer in terms of how you might be able to have it because when you see your name up on a screen somewhere and you feel like disney's talking to me this character is talking to me there's something remarkable and memorable about that too yeah and and i think that's what's you know this this universe is all about the characters and we want to play a role alongside them. You know, we, we watch them on screen. We either want to be like them, hang out with them, you know, uh, be trained by them. Uh, so that's why our live entertainment partners, it's, it's that video of the little kid with Spider-Man. That is how we can personalize stories the best, right? There's, there's a bunch of, you know, technology ways to, to try to achieve that. But it's still... Um, like that, that no tech, tech, that no tech moment. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the things, uh, the interactivity and the personalization, the gauntlets for web slingers, it, was that. How did that technology, those t the attraction and gauntlet meld together? Because that's that's amazing, and I, I feel like it's underutilized. But I get great scores when I use mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's what's uh, that was an, a great example of of our, our interactive team, um, our attraction development team, and then the, the premise of having web and the web kids that are inventing new technology to be able to have this, this contraption that, that can feel like a prototype that just enhances your, your attraction. And the reason that all those things work seamless in, in the story uh, are, are based in those realities that I was just talking about of like stories set in our world and, 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 what you want to believe, um, because that that would be potentially harder in a different universe or a different IP, right? Um, so, so those are the kinds of things when I when I say, uh, you know, when we see all of Tony Stark's tech in the films, like we just believe, like of course that's the next generation. That's just one. It's a little bit out of reach, but I can imagine that that's where we're going, and those are the things we try to deliver. Um, in the in the parks yeah, you guys are doing an excellent job you know wdi is essentially tony stark you guys are doing <laughs> the job of tony by creating everything and you know taking taking example the tower of terror and disney california adventure and turning that into mission breakout which is i i love tower but mission breakout took it to a whole new level i will wait the three hours for that without the lightning lane and after monsters after dark is Something when you announce the Christmas for Cosmic Rewind, it's like if it's anything Monsters After Dark, I'll wait every day for that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I appreciate it. You're, you're, you're setting me up better than I. No, um, uh, we, we, we love uh, a, a couple things. I'll, I'll talk to the. We love and know that details are, are noticed, so we try to think very hard about the backstories and the whys and making sense and the, and the continuity and consistency of it holding together as a, as a story. Um, and even though this is, especially with the multiverse, this juggernaut of a, of a story thread holding the, the globe of, of attractions together, but that's what, that's what makes it fun for all of us. And, and we're hoping that everybody sees the fun and the outcome um, because there's just layering on top of layering. You know, one thing I'm, I'm going into tangents now but um one one thing that if, if you look at avengers campus in both california and in paris the goal was to bring together a diverse group of of um of heroes and that meant the idea of the campus was a diverse 
group of buildings, you know, and, and, and experiences. Um, but it meant from a design point of view that it was like every, every address had its own entire visual development, graphic development, material boards. Like it was a whole land of, of design just within that slice of, of each one of those. So, um, that's not answering your question but but it's just that we love to dive deep on all of these things and um are happy that it's noticed i know you're short on time so i have one last question for you a a very wise man once talked about the the fact that with great power which is what you have comes great responsibility because when you're talking to disney fans and the marvel fans and star wars fans there is this connection that we have to these characters and these stories talk to me about because i i love that I've heard a number of people on the panel use this word. We want guests to feel a certain way, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a very emotional experience yeah. for us as guests when we get to walk into Avengers Campus or get on one of these attractions. Talk about the, you know, we're talking about the, the technology and the, talk about the, the integration of emotion. Yeah, no, there's, um, there's emotion and how we're using it to progress our story. And then there's the, the emotion that, everyone has when they watch these films, read these comics and know these stories or, or, or know the, know our parks that they come are already, you know, preset with. Right. Um, and how we can, how we can tap into that and, and utilize, but also uh, I'll, I'll also uh, say that we, um, choose my words. <laughs> uh, I'll also say that we recognize that pressure of you have a universe that has 7,000 characters. We have to, we have to pick our, our lanes and we have to pick what's right for the park experience. Um, and that's very different than, um, you know, maybe, maybe what you would do with a film or what you would do with a comic, because there are definitely characters that allow us to use our kit of parts, use our tools and technologies to deliver those emotions through, through magic, through illusion, through, you know, I'm thinking of like, Doctor Strange, um, in the park, we can go uh, places that we couldn't go with, let's say, Captain America, you know, uh, and, and especially, you know, throughout the first, um, uh, the first couple of phases of, of the MCU, Steve Rogers was just such a, an icon. He was larger than life with the shield, and it just, you saw that, and it represented so much emotion. But to your point about Tony Stark, Steve Rogers doesn't come to us with anything other than his shield and his point of view, right? Like he doesn't give us like um, tools to create vehicles or create, you know, architecture or something like like Tony does. Um, so we have to lean into not only the not only just the characters that resonate with our with our fans, um, but what we can deliver experiences is around experiences around um but again that's why live entertainment is so crucial to us because as as michael cerner was saying the diversity of the of of the universe is so powerful for all of us everybody being feeling like they're included feeling like they can see themselves uh in this universe I, i i love you know my um my son is adopted from china and watching Shang-Chi with him and we all lived in, in Shanghai for, for several years. So we, we picked up the language and the whole beginning of that film, like having him see Shang-Chi as, as this icon, uh, for him was incredible. And, and the more we can deliver those kinds of emotions in the, in the park to make sure people feel seen, um, that's, that's the power and that's what gets us most excited. I don't think I can talk that. That was, that was the end of the Thank you very much. Before getting into the next interview, I want to give you a little bit of context in the conversation. I am sitting down with Brian Volk-Weiss, who had a booth on the New York Comic Con 2022 floor. If this name sounds familiar, and actually me talking with Brian sounds familiar, I shared a conversation that I had with him some time ago when Behind the Attraction debuted on Disney+. 
even before that show, which I love and appreciate for so many reasons. And if you go back and listen to that conversation, you'll hear exactly why. But Brian is also the creator and producer and sometimes director of the current Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us and The Movies That Made Us, along with a number of other specials, including A Toy Store Near You, Down to Earth with Zac Efron. The list literally goes on and on. And his newest project is Icons on Earth. It is a multi series series that started with looking at star wars and now his current series is about the simpsons i had a chance to sit down one-on-one with brian on the show floor you'll hear sort of the ambient noise behind us talking not just about the simpsons series but storytelling in general these type of documentary like series about some of the things and characters and places and people that we have grown up with and fallen in love with over the years. My only regret is that we didn't have more time, not just to talk about the Simpsons series, but some of my favorite toys and movies that literally helped make and shape me and maybe what the future of those series are as well. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation into the mind and really the shared fandom that we have with Brian about some of the stories that we all love. Enjoy. So much of our fandom is rooted in nostalgia and sentiment and emotion and I think that's one of the things that not only fuels the fandom but also helps to unite us as fans and we have over the last years been able to be treated by such great content that embodies and embraces that and I'm talking about things like the toys that made us the movies that made us that when I saw them come on put a smile on my face much as I have now because it literally touched on so many of those heartstrings and times long gone by and uh, and very much, still very much in my heart. And the, I think I can use words like the mastermind behind those is Brian Volkweiss, whose work for fandom comes from a place of fandom. And I am excited to be chatting with him today about icons on earth, the Simpsons. Yeah. Brian, it's good to see you. Good to see you. I said as I as I sat down here, we were literally on the floor of New York Comic Con 2022 that we had met virtually when we were talking about the Behind the Attraction series that you did for Disney+. Plus. Again, that same thing. Just briefly talk about a lot of this work that you've done that I think, one, comes from a personal place of nostalgia and sentiment, but you really do know how to touch on the emotional aspect of our fandom. Yeah, I mean, we... We say all the time, uh, for as much comedy as we do, we try to do as much pathos. The pathos is everything. Like, and, and you you need both. Um, I like the example I always like to give is Seven. You know, the Brad Pitt Morgan Freeman movie. You know, when you think of that movie, of course, the first thing you think of is what's in the box. What's in the box? But if you watch the movie, it's funny. There are so many jokes. There is so much funny in that film. You know, just because he's got a library card, don't make him Yoda. Like, there's so much comedy in that film. And then conversely, there's a lot of comedies that you look at that have, like, a lot of drama in them. So I knew, and also I should back up for a second. I used to be, and I still am, but back in the day, as you know, because uh, you got a little gray hair too. He doesn't know. But it used to be really hard to watch documentaries. Like So I, in college, would go to movie theaters to see them. When I first moved out to L.A., I would go to movies. Like, that was the only place to really watch them. Um, so I always knew if I ever got the chance to make documentaries the way I wanted to, it would be a blend of comedy and pathos, and that we would shift the tone depending on the subject matter and what was going on with that subject matter at any given time. Well, that's, I think, why I love the series. And I'm not just sort of paying you fan service, but I really, my son and I, we watched it together, and he sort of asked what some of the things were we were looking at. But it was this, this, and I almost hesitate to use the word documentary because it was such a lighthearted sort of series. Documentary, you think it's, it's very sort of serious and sort of, the way you sort of deliver the storytelling is one that you feel as though you're sitting around a table talking with fellow fans. Well, that's very, 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 very deliberate because, like I was saying, I, I'm a big 
consumer of documentaries and I would watch these documentaries about toys. Like my favorite example is, and I'm not saying it's a bad movie, it's a good film, but there's a doc, we were not, believe it or not, we were not the first people to make a documentary about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, the one that came out before mine that I was very excited to see I mean, the, the, first of all, th this is a toy that is called the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This documentary treated it like the rise and fall of the Third Reich, where it's like the music they chose, the editing style, these endless B-roll shots of, like, the sun rising on Main Street. And I'm literally sitting there watching it, and I'm like, who wants to see this? Who gives it about the sun rising on Main Street? The other thing we also very deliberately don't do, and I know this always sounds really weird, nothing about the fans. Nothing. Because my quote-unquote philosophy, that's too fancy a word, but if, if I only use one word, my philosophy. Anytime, anytime somebody hits play, on anything we've made. That's an hour from another show. That's an hour they don't go to Target and buy toothpaste. That's an hour they're not hanging with their kids, playing Monopoly, whatever. And like, you need to reward people for that hour. And the way I try to do it is to give them information. I don't care if they're the biggest Simpsons fan who ever lived. We try so hard, we spend so much time and so much money to find out new information um, that we reward their time. But going back to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like, so I'm literally watching this documentary about Ninja Turtles, and we're also teenagers, and um, why are you spending 20 seconds showing a sunset? I want information. I want to laugh. I want to cry. I want to learn new stuff. So every, I, I swear to you, you could, you could interview our editors, you could interview our producers. Every minute has to have what we call scoop. And it either has to be scoop, scoop, like just you didn't know. It has to be scoop that makes you laugh. And that can be done with our voiceover. That can be done with something somebody said. Or there has to be pathos, which by the way, we, the way we do the pathos or at least try to, sometimes we get it more right than others, is I call it the RoboCop. And what I mean by that is, uh, you familiar with the movie? Sure, yeah. So you remember the scene in RoboCop where he goes as RoboCop back to his old house, and it's like all white-walled, the wife and kid had moved out, they were gone. So it's literally RoboCop and his 2,000-pound armor, robot bodies, kind of like Frankenstein, walking around this empty house... And his memories, it keeps cutting back and forth between his memories and what he's seeing of this empty house. And now that I've told you that, watch the end of the Star Wars episode of Movies That Made Us, Toys That Made Us, watch the end of the um, uh, RoboCop. By the way, we did the best ever RoboCop in RoboCop, where we had Ed Newmeyer literally walking around Dallas walking around OCP headquarters, the building where they had filmed it. So that's all done by design to give you goosebumps or to make you laugh. Well, even so the Behind the Attraction series, right? I think that's how we first got connected. I, I fell in love with because I love the, the delivery mechanism that you used. You know, and, and it's interesting because you the Imagineering story on Disney Plus is a fantastic yes, is. documentary series. Yes, you talk about some similar things that are covered, but in such a different, light, fun, high energy type of way that still also reminds us that it comes from such a truly we love Disney because of the way it makes us feel. Yeah. I mean, listen, Leslie Iwerks, I think she's one of the greatest documentarians of all time, and it doesn't matter what I think, she's won Oscars. <laughs> I haven't. But it's a very, very different type of storytelling. And I would argue the perfect experience would be to watch both. Because she adds a lot of value. And it's funny, she does do a lot of those sunset B-roll shots. But she does it in a way that works for the story. 
Whereas that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles doc, it was like, oh, you got a fancy camera, you're trying to show off, you're boring me. Um, but she does it in a way where it's about the artistry of what she's covering. So I, I love, I think I've seen everything she's done. And you can tell that the work that you do comes from a place of love. Right? I keep yeah. talking about it's important that, because we as fans can tell if it's not. We can tell if it's a piece of work or if we can tell if it's a passion project that comes. And even so, even now with Icons Unearthed, I want to keep on calling Icons Unleashed. It's Icons Unearthed, The Simpsons. That comes from you have a personal fandom for The Simpsons that actually goes back. If I if I remember correctly. You like it goes back to the early days of Fox. Like I'm thinking Herman's Head yeah. and the Tracy Ullman yeah. show, and being able to take yeah. that 58 second clip, and you know, 34 years later. I remember sitting there with my mom when we saw a commercial for The Simpsons as a TV show, and we looked at each other and we're like, "How are they going to turn that into that?" And we were there. We saw the first episode the night it aired. I mean, we got we sat down. I remember like it was yesterday. We sat down five minutes early, just waiting for the commercials to end, and then it started. Neither one of us thought it would be anything special or anything good. How could it be? It was a 40-second interstitial. And then it was good. And it was magic. And obviously, uh, the rest of the world agreed with uh, me and my mom. <laughs> so, fast forward to today. So, how does... I, I was trying to imagine what the process for you has to be like to tell this story of The Simpsons, right? It's the first animated yeah. project that you've done. That's right. Talk to me about, well, and, and I love the fact that the story for The Simpsons doesn't start with the airing of the first Simpsons. You really give sort of context in terms of what television was like at that yeah. time. And the fact that you're talking about sitting down five minutes before because we weren't sort of streaming anything back then gives a little bit of a frame of reference. Well, my favorite word, my number one favorite word, you know, when you're playing Jeopardy or whatever, like, what's your, you're with a five-year-old, what's your favorite word? Is context. To me, context is everything. And I've always, I've said this my whole life, the most badass name ever for a battleship or an aircraft carrier, whatever, would be the USS Context. And what I mean by that is, think about it. If you're some small country doing some dumb, and the USS Context shows up, it's literally saying, hey, you're doing some crazy... We've just parked an airport next to your capital city with 90 fighters and bombers. Well, you keep doing your dumb if you want, but we have, a, we have an airport next to you with, with a lot of bombs. So I've always thought that word is it's so important. And again, that's that mixture of comedy and pathos. Each gives the other one context. So with Simpsons, to me, because I love Simpsons. I've been watching it literally since day one. But I had never read a book about it. I had never seen a documentary about it. I knew very little about it. So when the show was greenlit, um, I started reading the books. I read seven or eight books minimum. I watched a bunch of documentaries. I watched tons of interviews. And the thing... That there were two things that hit me really hard. Because, by the way, I knew from day one we were never going to do a show that was like, who are the top ten wackiest characters from Springfield? Who's better, Bart or Homer? Like, we, we don't do shows like that. That's for VH1 in the 90s. So I always try to find what I call the spinal column. What is the spinal column of this series? What is the spinal column of this episode? And from all my research, what I learned was um, it's about the rise of Fox and people do not understand how big The Simpsons is. They don't get it. Like, I guarantee you anything, and I have no proof of this whatsoever, but I guarantee you anything. A significant percentage of the dollars that Disney wrote to Fox when they acquired Fox was The Simpsons. 2,000 movies in the Fox catalog, probably 50,000 hours of television. I guarantee you at least 5% of the purchase price was The Simpsons. Well, you talk about, you know, Mickey Mouse being so recognizable anywhere on the planet. You have to imagine Bart Simpson is probably equally as recognizable. Yeah. yeah, he's up there. 
He's up there. Close second. Yeah. So for you, approaching this too, not just because it's animated, so it has to be sort of a different approach, yeah. but because it's a series as opposed to a movie or a toy or a toy line, what sort of challenges or opportunities does that present to you as the filmmaker? It, it was all challenges. <laughs> were, it, was really, it was very difficult. And I'll be completely honest with you, um, I didn't realize. I, I, I just go. Like, and I just... I had the confidence or the stupidity or both to just say, I'll figure say it out. Say yes and figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was actually really hard because at the end of the day on a movie or a TV show, maybe we can't get George Clooney, but we can get the second AD. We can get the set publicist. We can get a production assistant. Like with Simpsons, because there is no set, these jobs don't exist. So we really were limited as to who we had access to. And because there were, like I said, there were jobs that did not exist, that exist in every other kind of show or medium. There's no version of the Imagineers for The Simpsons. There's no version of the guy at Marvel, Bud Budiansky, who came up with everything for Transformers in a three-day weekend right before Thanksgiving. So we needed to find people that would were witnesses to what happened. But that was the first thing. Second thing is, because it's all anim animated, it's done in a, as controlled an environment as could exist. So all the wacky, fun stories of, you know, when we're talking about dirty dancing for movies that made us, where we're like, you see the character walking in a straight line, but at the beginning of her walking, she was in New Jersey, and at the end of her walking, she was in South Carolina. You couldn't do like that for Simpsons, because it didn't happen. And then you also had this weird thing where you'd have 20 writers in a room killing themselves for six months, and then nothing happens for nine months, because it's all getting animated in Korea. And then the rough, and then it start like, so there were all these bizarre phenomenons, and, you know, it was Star Trek for this show we did last year, The Center Seat. We did 11 episodes, deepest dive ever into Star Trek. But it was very, very obvious structure. One episode about the original series. One episode about Star Trek One. One episode about Deep Space Nine. One episode about Voyager. This we couldn't do like that. So we had to create our own storytelling devices to make this 36 year I know it's 34 seasons but it's basically been in production for 36 years we had to find story devices to divide it into six episodes that was very hard very very hard right and it also the opportunity comes to be able to bring people to the forefront that are and I mean this respectfully that are relatively invisible nobody knows who the showrunner is right. from The Simpsons or just how important their role is, but your work in, in this type of series allows those people to not only be recognized, but understood in terms of just what their responsibilities are. That's exactly right. And by the way, partially because of that, you just reminded me of this. There was another thing with The Simpsons that made this the most complicated and difficult season we've ever done of anything. Um, like, Simpsons was, what happened with The Simpsons had never happened before. There had never been this kind of weird, stupid little thing that became a billion-dollar-a-year property. It had never happened. So because of that, a lot of the contracts that existed with the people that made the show, they were anti those contracts were based on how the world had worked for the prior 20, 30 years. The Simpsons changed everything. So everything that came after The Simpsons was affected by The Simpsons. But the problem was, all those people that were involved with making The Simpsons had signed these contracts because they didn't think it would become what it became. By the way, Roddenberry had a similar thing with Star Trek. So what ended up happening was there were, in, in a volume I have never seen in my life, so many lawsuits. And because there were so many lawsuits, we had so much trouble getting people to talk to us because they were like, I'd love to tell you what happened. I can't. I'll get sued. I want to. And by the way, the other thing that happened was Fox. It wasn't just the writers who kind of got hurt. 
Fox in many ways because I don't know have you seen the first episode not yet so one of the things we uncovered and by the way this phenomenon I'm about to describe this is as common as it gets for the biggest stuff in the world the only reason the Simpsons got on the air the only reason 100% was because James L. Brooks you know the answer I know, yeah I read the story yeah oh okay so you know yeah do you no, want me to say it share, yeah please it's great so James L. Brooks had made four movies for Fox. One was a bigger hit than the next. He was in the middle of renegotiating his next four films, by the way, all of which would either fail or be barely get to first base. And he said, you know, you want to close this deal? I need 13 episodes. Without that leverage, which was pure politics, pure business, there's no Simpsons. So that was the kind of stuff that we learned that again from fox's point of view going back to the lawsuits like from fox's point of view they're suddenly like writing you know here's a show they didn't want and yes it's doing great yes it's making a lot of money but here's the thing that's interesting the way these deals work they always work like this for over 100 years they work like this today if you're the studio you don't have to pay back in to anybody until your costs are covered. And as I'm sure you've heard, there's some creative Hollywood accounting. So maybe if a show costs 100 bucks, maybe you can claim it costs 500 bucks. And you can make 400 bucks a profit. The Simpsons was making so much money that after like literally less than three years, all of a sudden someone at Fox is like, um, who's, who's John Doe? And someone else would say, I don't know, why? We're, we're sending John Doe $10 million every quarter. And it's 1993. Who is this? And all of a sudden, Fox was like going through their own contract, being like, what did we do? So this, all of this, and then you had a lot of writers and a lot of creators and a lot of people, the voice talent, everybody, was like, I signed a contract. Well, I'm getting paid $3,400 an episode. That episode is making this company $100 million in two years. So it led to a lot of lawsuits. And because of that, we had a lot of trouble getting people to talk to us. But that's what I love. Like, I get to sit and listen to you tell these stories or go and watch the series because it's the stories behind the stories that I love, right? Nobody knows that The Simpsons, as we know today, happened because it was a negotiation tactic. So we don't know about all those things because you're right. We can watch other documentaries that sort of scratch the surface of, you know, talk about Bart and Lisa, but you really do get to the people behind the stories yeah. and the stories behind the stories. No. we. It's funny. I've been talking about Marshall Lucas for our Star Wars show for the last six months. I, I wouldn't say I was equally excited, but when we got Garth and Seer, one of the execs who worked at Fox at the time, when he agreed to an interview, to me, I was like, I was, this is going to sound horrible, but like, I was more excited to get Garth and Seer for this show than I was to get Sigourney Weaver for Aliens. Because as great as Sigourney, and by the way, I will say this, for someone at her level, I mean, she said, every, I mean, she answered every question. Like, there was no, but, so she might have actually been a bad example to make right now. But my point is, like, I, I'll give you a better example. We didn't even try. No, that's not true. I had to try. but So we sent an email. But we didn't follow up. We didn't care about Bruce Willis for Die Hard. And the reason is, the guy has been doing EPKs and DVD extras for Die Hard for 40 years. What is Bruce Willis going to say 30 years after the movie came out that he hasn't already said? A, he's not going to remember... B, he's probably already said it. So you're going to sit there and he'll be like, I remember when I put on the wife beater for the first time and I knew. Like, First of all, no, you didn't. You're lying. <laughs> Second of all, we've heard that story 50 times. But then you get Garth Anseer, who was there. He was a junior exec. He had gotten this huge job. He was like, I think in his late 20s. So his memory was good. Everything was new and exciting to him. Like, and what he's the one who told us about the movie deal. 
Like he's so much of what made our series our series came from Garth and Sierra. People like Garth. And that's again the thing that I love is you might not necessarily recognize the names, but it's the stories that they bring to the table that really is is the gold in it. What last question? What's the one thing that you want or hope people take away from this series, or just as as a whole, the work that you create that sort of again follows in this very similar type of path? You know, uh, our whole lives, especially as New Yorkers, we're driving over bridges. We're driving over to Brooklyn Bridge, Whitestone Bridge, Throg's Neck, whatever. Then one day, you read a book or you watch a documentary, especially with the Brooklyn Bridge, about the making of these bridges. And you're literally reading this or you're literally watching this and you're like, who even thought to try to do it like this? Who is looking at a bridge that was fine and said, you know, we could make a better bridge if it was a suspension bridge. And all we have to do is get cables, the technology of which doesn't even exist, uh, go up, not out, go up. And you watch a documentary about the making of the Brooklyn Bridge, you will never, ever look at that bridge the same way. You will never take it for granted. You will never, ever... Just be like, I'm on a bridge. Like, you will understand, this took 40 years of thought, and including 10 10 years of construction, to make the Brooklyn Bridge. That's what I wanted to do for The Simpsons. Because I think people, even the biggest diehard fans, I think they don't get how complicated and risky and difficult all of this was in the beginning. And then, the, of course, the challenge for the last 25 years has been, how do you stay at the top? Who stays at the top for 34 seasons? And what that requires is a staggering consistency in overpaying writers to stay, uh, having more writers than you need. Any other cartoon like this, any other show, would have between five and maybe ten writers. Simpsons has like 25 writers. And they're the highest paid in the business. The fact that for 34 seasons, no one has taken over Fox or Disney and said, you got to cut costs. That is amazing. And that's what we tried to show the world is this, this shouldn't have happened at all. And it should not be going on 36 years later. And this is how it started. It was an interstitial that barely worked that James L. Brooks politically willed into existence. And here we are, 36 years later. Well, I think they also pay the writers because they clearly can predict the future. But again, it's a separate conversation. Better than we even think. I mean, the stuff that's not talked about that's insane, it's crazy. Well, thank you so much, not just for your time today, but for all the amazing work that you've done that we enjoy. Um, I will certainly share where people can find, but, but the series is airing now on it's on vice tv 10 o'clock wednesdays next week is the second episode and they repeat them morning noon and night and uh we just announced today they've already picked up season three so we got the green light and uh we're making another one and you have to check out the toys the toys that made us the movies that made us how many seasons of each three of toys um Five of movies. There might be more to come about. I hope so. I love the work. Appreciate you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Appreciate this is it. fun, man. Appreciate it. Time for our Disney trivia question of the week. Where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details in which you see, hear, taste, or remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is once again brought to you by you. Because by becoming a member of the WW Radio Nation family, you literally help bring every episode of WW Radio to life. Every live broadcast, the contests, the giveaways, they are in events. They're all thanks to, by, for, with, and about you. And you can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar per month. 
and also get cool exclusive rewards every month like scavenger hunts, trivia quests, group video calls, access to our private Facebook group, shirts, stickers, early access and discounts to special events, monthly care packages from the parks, and much more. I sincerely appreciate you and your love, support, and friendship and help. I love being able to give back to you each and every month. I want to thank some new and longtime members of the Nation family, including Stuart Boyles, Kevin Shea, John Maloney, Amy Bonner, Josh Anderson, and Chris Blagg. Again, I love and appreciate you. If you want to find out how you can join the nation, all you need to do is visit www.radio.com support. Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I asked you to simply tell me, what was Astro Orbiter originally called? What was the original name of Astro Orbiter when it opened in Tomorrowland in Walt Disney World? Thanks to all of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew, of course, that the answer is Star Jets. Now, when it first opened in Tomorrowland, it was not an opening day attraction. Again, there was not a lot in Tomorrowland on October 1st, 1971. Astro Orbiter actually first opened November 28th, 1974, as a D-ticket attraction known as Star Jets. It then closed, was redesigned, repainted, really rethemed, and reopened on April 30th, 1994, as Astro Orbiter, as part of that complete renovation and retheming of Tomorrowland, including the addition of Space Mountain, Carousel of Progress, the Woodway People Mover, and really making Star Jets the focal point of Tomorrowland. Now, I took all the correct entries, and there were a lot of them, and thanks to some of you who sh- shared some of your memories of riding Star Jets when it first opened, but unfortunately, we can only have one winner, and last week, you were playing for a Diz Plate, which are those high-quality prints on metal, which I love. I have many of them on my walls. No nails, no levels, no hooks. Easy to attach with a metal square. Easy to swap out the literally millions of different designs that are officially licensed from Marvel, Star Wars, and Netflix. Right now, I have Daredevil on my wall. I love this designs. I love how you can build collections of the things that you're passionate about put them right on your wall and easily swap them out. They look great. They're great for the environment. Displate plants a tree for every displate that you buy. And you can check out some of my favorite displates, including some of the ones I already own at www.radio.com slash displate, D-I-S-P-L-A-T-E. And if you use that link and the code WWRadio at checkout, you can save up to 29% off your order for a limited time. And this week's winner is going to be able to go use that link, pick out any Displate in their collection. Just let me know which one you want. I'll send it to Displate. They will make it and send it right to you. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Sarah Gray from Cheshire in the United Kingdom. So, Sarah, congratulations. Looking forward to seeing which Displate you choose. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So I've been thinking a lot about Walt Disney again this week. I incorporate a lot of Walt and the lessons we can take from him in what I do when I work with coaching clients and when I speak. So this week's trivia contest is about Walt and where you can find him in Walt Disney World because Walt Disney has two windows, not the cast member door, two windows on Main Street USA. Where are they? Where are Walt Disney's two windows on Main Street USA Just give me the location. You have until Sunday, October 23rd at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com. Click on this week's podcast. Use the online form there. And this week, you're going to play for a prize package that includes, but is not limited to, a brand new WW Radio pin, mug, and a mystery prize. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I'd love to know your thoughts about the evolution of the Disney Parks experience, where it started, where it is now, and where you think storytelling and interactivity and personalization is going in the Disney Parks. Come be part of the community and conversation by discussing this or anything in the Disney, Marvel, or Star Wars universe in the WW Radio Clubhouse at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. It is our fun family-friendly, very, very welcoming group over on Facebook. You can also call the voicemail, be heard on the air by calling 407-900-9391 or email me with a question or a comment at lou at 
Visit our events page at www.radio.com slash events for our next meet of the month in Walt Disney World, which I promise is coming soon, as well as group cruises, group adventures by Disney, and other events I'm going to be announcing very soon. Please visit loumangelo.com to find out how I can come to speak to your event conference, school, or organization. I can join you in person at your event or virtually online with engaging and thought-provoking and entertaining presentations that provide real-world, actionable strategies for entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, employees, and students alike. I craft custom presentations for you and your audience about lessons that we can learn from the Disney parks or lessons we can learn from Walt Disney on entrepreneurship leadership, customer service, or why and how to turn what you love into what you do. Again, you can find out more and reach out to me by visiting loumangelo.com. Thanks as always to Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider for all your vacation planning needs, whether you're coming to Walt Disney World, Land, Cruise, Aulani, or anywhere on this big, blue, beautiful world of ours. Visit mousefantravel.com for all available discounts, the best possible prices, and most importantly, the best level of personal service that really is their hallmark and it all comes at no cost to you. Again, visit them at mousefantravel.com. It's who I love, it's who I use, and it's why it's who I recommend to you. And if you like the show, and I hope that you do, please help spread the word, tell a friend, share a link uh, to this or your favorite episode on social. And if you can, take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show, whether it's over in Spotify or if you come to Apple Podcast, rate and review the show there. And I want to thank some recent reviewers like Minifam from the United Kingdom who says it's fantastic. I've been listening to the podcast for over a year now in our preparation for our trip back in the summer. Luna's guests are very informative, helpful, and funny. Our trip has come and gone, but I still find myself wanting to listen each week as I know we'll be back to the most magical place, and I want to know what we can look forward to next. I particularly love the top 10 lists, and I find myself comparing them to our favorites. Thank you to everyone involved, but especially Lou. Especially, I love your dedication to the dining element. As a big fan of anything food-related, I find myself making lists of where to go next. So do I. I recently bought the 50th anniversary cookbook after listening to your podcast with the authors, and I can't wait to try some of the recommended recipes. Thank you. Can't wait to sit back, relax, and enjoy. Mini fam, thank you very much. I can't wait to come back to the United Kingdom hopefully soon. Yes, I am planning an event there. Stay tuned. But finally, most importantly, thank you so very much. I could not do what I do and I could not share this thing and this place and the people that I am so passionate about if it weren't for you, my friend, part of this incredible community that you have created. Again, this warm, wonderful, welcoming place that doesn't just exist on Facebook or on social, but exists in real life and hopefully The way that we treat each other in this community is a way that we can treat each other in all of us in the real world by being kind and patient and just polite and courteous to other people. Simple things that my parents taught me as a kid that sometimes are are lost uh, on others. And it's why I talk about choosing the good, not just in, in what you do or what you experience, but who you come across and who you experience. And hopefully you will be that positive light and that positive change and that positive impact, because I promise you that that positivity has a ripple effect and it is contagious. So I hope that this is truly your best week ever. And I hope to see you on the live show on Wednesday nights at our next in-person event. And of course, right back here next week. So until then, I love you. I appreciate you. See ya. Hey, Lou, this is Jeff Richardson from Brookhaven, Mississippi. I haven't called in for a long time. And one reason I haven't called in is because I hadn't been to Disney World in about 19 months. But Tomorrow morning, today is uh, October 7th. Tomorrow morning, October 8th, we head out and are going to be there for about six days and get to go to the Halloween party for the first time. So we're excited about that. And I do want to tell you, we're, you got a lot of listeners out here that don't call in. So, but we're excited uh, to be there and uh, appreciate all you do and keeping us in touch when we have these long stretches where we're not able to be there. So have a great day. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison in Flower Town, Pennsylvania. I just came back from my walk and I was listening to your interview with Jody Benson, which I was really happy about because I love her. And I started thinking about um, The Little Mermaid and how much that movie meant to me. Um, it came out in a time when my family was struggling. Um, My mother had passed away a few years prior, and 
my dad and my siblings and I were really struggling to figure out how to stay together as a family. And so it was some hard years for us. And that movie came out and I latched on to Ariel. She's my favorite. I mean, come on, look at her hair while it's underwater. It's like perfect at all times. Like I wanted that hair. But um, I've seen that movie. I can't even tell you how many times I know every word. It's still my favorite. To this day, I'm 47 years old. I am having a rough day. I put it on. I put it on for the dogs to listen to. I sing it to them. I act out Ursula's um, songs like people would think I'm nuts. I even went so far as to there were these two cats that I used to pet sit. Um, and every time I walked in the house, I'd go, Alexa, play the Little Mermaid soundtrack. Every single time I walked in, and I knew that by the time part of your world was over, which, of course, I would sing, you know, at the top of my lungs because it's one of my favorite Disney songs. I knew that by the time that song was done, my visit with the cats was done. And instead of turning it off, I just let them listen to the rest of the soundtrack after I'd left. And there was always a part of me that thought maybe they enjoyed it. So, <laughs> Jody, you inspire me. Um, that movie was amazing. I still, it makes me want to go watch it right now. But it meant so much to me. And it's amazing that you can touch people's lives like that that you don't even know. Like, you helped me through a really hard time in my family's life, and you don't even know it. Um, and that's okay. Like, thank you. Thank you so much for taking that role. And um, thank you for doing that interview, Lou. I loved it. And um, everybody make somebody smile and have a glorious day. And I'll see you all in the box.